It's I, I think if I were to classify Fincher in terms of how he thinks differently as a filmmaker, I see him as a kind of novelist um, in a sense that I think that he has the entire story and how it looks laid out in his head. And, and the same way that when a novelist is writing that they are um, they are plotting every moment, every second. They they have to do um, they have to describe the wallpaper in the atmosphere. They have to describe every little bit of it, and they have to have a voice. And they have to and I you know I I'm also I'm also a fiction writer, so I I you know have written a couple of novels, and hopefully one will get published one day. But it's <laughs> a really really difficult skill to yes. master. Um, so much more I think than than screenwriting. So so much more, and I I see Fincher as a novelistic filmmaker in that sense because I I do think that he has a compartmentalized brain that can hold different things at the same time and can figure out the fact that like when he's doing coverage on you know like a table scene that he needs to like uh a get make his day so like maybe he's gonna do like a must ball or something so that he he can light 360 yeah. and that um that that is also going to affect the color of the paint or the wallpaper behind him and you know like the, these things that he's thinking about like um simultaneously and and i i see that as a novelistic way to think about things and god i i just i i love it i you know everyone aspires to to be that type of thinker i think welcome to zodiac chronicle a 24-part investigation into david finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece zodiac adapted from robert graysmith's novel by the screenwriter james vanderbilt the film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, Anthony Edwards, and John Carroll Lynch. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Our introduction today was former film critic at the LA Weekly and Village Voice turned filmmaker, screenwriter of Black Christmas, and former host of the Switchblade Sisters podcast, April Wolf. Before we dive into the theme of the week in the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review and hell, share the show wherever you're listening. It is a massive help for attracting people to our show, our brand of obsessive cinematic deep dives. I also want to let you know that the links to our Patreon with a weekly rum and rant podcast and special uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, as well as links to our merch with artwork by the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reid, who designed our show's pin, are in the show description or at oneheatminute.com. Joining me to rummage through the disgusting trailer of John Carroll Lynch's Arthur Lee Allen today Ah, Zodiac screenwriter James Vanderbilt, online movie writing veteran, the founder of HitFix, film critic, screenwriter, industry analyst, the legendary Drew McWeeny, Los Angeles-based film critic and journalist for the Tribune News Service and Los Angeles Times, part-time lecturer at Chapman University and the co-host of our own Miami Nice podcast, Katie Walsh. Writer and film critic at the Film School Rejects and guest on this week's Miami Nice, Anna Swanson. Contributor for Film School Rejects and stacker, movies intern at Paste, Brianna Ziegler. Former long-running editor of Time Out New York, editor, critic and writer for hire with bylines at the New York Times, Sight and Sound, Empire and a true believer of all things Zodiac, the great Joshua Rothkopf and finally some newcomers to Zodiac Chronicle. Writer and director of The Trouble with the Truth, contributor to the American Cinematographer, historian, and the best screening moderator in LA and probably the greater US, Jim Hempel. Art director, writer, and the creator of Cinephile, a card game, Corey Everett. And my dear friend, author of Fierce Bitches, Peckerwood, crime fiction aficionado and author of noir literature, film and culture blog, hard-boiled wonderland, Jedediah Ayers. This is the 16th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Leo Part 2. Every episode we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme. This sequence of the film shows the internal torment of doubt creeping in. As we see Tosky wonder, did I believe Arthur Lee Allen was the Zodiac? Or did I just want him to be so this could all be over? So the theme of the week needs to encapsulate that self-doubt and maybe that second of temptation to step over the line. So this week's theme is insomnia. 
We left off with mounting setback after frustrating inconclusion in the SFPD's investigation into Arthur Lee Allen. The brief sliver of silver lining revealed from Catherine, Lee's sister-in-law, opens a crack in the door and allows for a potential loophole to finally search the lair of this predator. Here's Corey Everett, Jed Ayres, and eventually James Vanderbilt talking about the gap in Finch's career between Panic Room and Zodiac and about the astronomical expectations when David Fincher is returning to the genre of serial killers. When I think about Zodiac, I think about I think about the first time I saw it and I think about what my relationship was to David Fincher and David Fincher's films at the time it came out. And looking back uh, at both the film and his career from 2021, it's fascinating to see how much has changed since 2007. Um, Where, you know, thinking about this in rewatching the film last night, um, I really see Zodiac as the turning point in his career between his more stylish music video 90s Uh, Let me show you what I can do, you know, um, thumbing my nose at the system. Um, Let me play around with this technology to show you a a, a type of filmmaking, a type of storytelling that we haven't seen in feature filmmaking. You know, I'm going to take you through the barrel of this gun. I'm going to take you, you know, around the the floors and in the air shaft of this house. I'm going to do things that have never been done on this scale. And then there's between Panic Room and Zodiac, there's a five-year gap, which was the longest in his career up until that point. And I think Fight Club was such a big deal for me and a lot of people as coming in that fall of 99. And where that was the, that was the year I started college, graduated from high school, started college, 1999. And you know, I know there now there is a book about this um, from my buddy uh, Brian Raftery, but and you know it's kind of commonly discussed. But I just remember in '99 going to the movies every week and so frequently having my mind blown by something. And so I, you know, I really loved Seven. I liked the game a lot, and Fight Club was you know as huge for me as it was at the time and just one of the movies that really stuck out of a year that was just truly something special. I I remember even being let down the next couple of years, even though I still loved movies, but it was like once I had hit that mountaintop of 99, where it was just like discovering new filmmakers and filmmakers kind of hitting their peaks or making new peaks. And and it was just like this huge time of discovery for me. And that the next couple of years were a little bit of a letdown. I'm, I remember seeing Panic Room, you know, as this follow-up to Fight Club and liking it, but definitely being let down by, oh, okay, well, three years later, and like, this is what he's kind of devoted his time to. And I haven't revisited it in a while, um, but, you know, I remember it feeling like more of a, you know, a technical exercise and kind of a, a nasty little thriller and something where he could, you know, flex some of his filmmaking muscles, but wasn't necessarily trying to top what he had done before. You know, yeah. it, it felt like a a throat clearing um, after Fight Club. And then, and then five years passed. And that in filmmaking time, you know, as a director working um, is a long time. And mm. so I remember the anticipation for me personally with Zodiac was huge because in that five years, I remember kind of following the movie news, you know, through message boards and, you know, nascent, you know, uh, internet and ain't it cool and whatever was going on of just David Fincher is attached to Ad Astra. David Fincher is attached to, you know, um, adapt Black Hole. David Fincher is attached to, uh, uh, attached to, you know, a dozen different projects that never happened. Yes. And then finally, finally, David Fincher is going to make Zodiac. And, you know, I think for everybody who was a fan of his work, it was like, you know, Seven was a He's coming high. high point and He's an iconic. High. Yeah, exactly. It was an iconic 90s movie and serial killers and David Fincher. It just goes together, yeah. peanut butter and jelly. And it was just like, I cannot wait for this. I cannot wait for this movie. And um, 
And then, so so I so I saw Zodiac. So it came out in March here in the United States, which is interesting now um, to think about the way you described it. You know, with there will be blood in No Country for Old Men, which here were the kind of winter Oscar releases. That was November, December, and yeah. this was March. So this was spring. This was not Oscar time. This was um, not summer and not fall releases. And yeah. we're just going to put this out. And I think the studio, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they thought it, they weren't sure how it would do with audiences. They thought maybe March we can kind of sneak this out and, and turn a profit, but this yes. isn't an awards play. I don't know if they knew what they had. Um, and so to think about the kind of David Fincher that we think of now as, well, if he makes a movie, it's gonna be an awards contender. It's gonna be yeah. Mank, it's gonna be The Social Network. It's gonna be, you know, which was just not at all what you would think about David Fincher pre 2007, you know, not at all. Um, and so, so I remember seeing it and I saw it at, um, there's a theater on the Upper West Side uh, in Manhattan uh, called Lincoln Square. It is an AMC, uh, but it has this really beautiful, number one, I think it has the second largest IMAX screen in North America. And it also has this, what was called Theater One, or I think it was the Lowe's Theater at some point, which was this gigantic screen with a beautiful balcony and this kind of, you know, yeah. you know, ornate, you know, elephant design and curtains and all this stuff. And just didn't feel like a multiplex, even though it was in a multiplex. And so, I remember seeing Zodiac uh, opening night there and being extremely excited for it. And I remember liking the movie, but I remember walking out with a little bit of probably the feeling that most people uh, of a kind of <laughs> unresolved, you know, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it underwhelmed in that the ending is about as far away from the seven ending as you can get in terms of here's the big bang, you know, it's all leading up to this. We are hurtling towards this finale and here you go. Um, and this is not that. I am not a feverish venture guy. And part of that is because I really expected to be early yes. on, you know, yes. when he, um, I really expected to be in the nineties. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I was anticipating Fight Club, you know, way more than a year out. You know, uh, I, I thought I was, you know, I already read the book. I was a big fan and I was excited that Looks he great. was going to do it. And that was, and, uh, and the movie came out and was amazing. I, I And I really thought Fincher's going to be my guy, right? And, yes. Um, and I don't think that he needs to be my guy like i don't think that he let me down or something like that like he's you know he's got a problem that he's not living up to me. but it, <laughs> it just it's like oh no he turned out to be somebody else um yeah. you know he, he'd done those crime films seven and, and uh and the game i wasn't real hot on but um i really thought he was going to be my guy and so i i kind of i stopped going to see him theatrically after panic room i'm remembering now that i was a little prejudiced against it too because he was supposed to do in that five-year period is when i was getting super excited for his black dahlia yes jed i completely forgot about that until you said that yeah i was so excited for, because i was a huge james elroy fan and i thought this is gonna be the he's he's my guy and this is gonna be it and and he you know he moved on i wasn't ready to move on he moved on and he made this other you know serial killer movie that i wasn't as invested in uh right off the bat but mm. um oh the other thing honestly that that came in there though is that i had two children in those uh, <laughs> in those you did five years in between so i i did not uh I did not go see many movies theatrically for several years, so. Yeah, I mean, we started with Lake Berryessa um, and that's it. That was the first thing we shot. And I remember realizing too that David, I don't think had made a film in five years too. So yeah. it was an interesting kind of, it was like he had been, he was working and did, but it was sort of, I think, I think there was a, there was a, a nervousness about getting back on the horse too. And we were shooting digitally, which meant, which none of us, he had done it before, but none of 
us had really ever done before. Yes. He had to fight the studio to let them shoot digitally. I mean, that's how crazy it was back then. But it meant you could get in closer to the actors because the camera was much smaller. It meant you didn't need to have these huge lighting rigs. So it was, it was this much more intimate kind of thing. And it, and then we, and it was a smaller crew too, because you actually had to walk down to, you know, where we, where that happened is, is a real walk down from the road. It's fairly inaccessible. It's, and, and, you know, just shot it, just shot it very simply. It's photographed very, you know, did, did it a bunch of times, but it was, everybody was very serious about what they were doing. Everybody was, you know, again, knew that they were playing real people and, and sort of, and then for me, the, I was just elated we were making it because the, 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 that that movie was the first movie I worked on from the beginning to the end as the writer. I'd gotten a couple things made before, but I had always either been the, the person who sold the spec script and then was rewritten or the person who came in at some other process. I'd never originated a project, oh, gone we, with it to the know, end. Met with, and, met with Gray Smith to lobby for him to give you guys yeah. a shot at it. Yeah, like yeah. And, and, and never felt, and, and, and David had been very upfront and just said, you know, you're the writer. Like that's, I'm the director, you're the writer, he's the producer, we do our jobs. And, you know, so it was, uh, I'd never gone all the way through. So just even getting this thing made that I had lived in my head for so long with this director, oh my God. <laughs> um, and he was Dave, he was still capital D, capital F David Fincher back then too. Yeah. He was definitely, you know, um, the same way he is today. And so just actually shooting those days was sort of this this crazy kind of magical um, thing. And then, uh, and Richmond Arquette, I should say, played the Zodiac in that scene, who was lovely and wonderful. And, and, um, and then we went to um, San Francisco. We shot there for, I think, two or three days. Then we went to San Francisco and started with Jake and Mark. And I do remember the first scene they did was uh, when Ruffalo comes out of the Hall of Justice and Jake, it's late in the film, and Jake is 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 sort of berating him, and he says, "Get away! I'm I'm over this. I'm over you." <laughs> and the first setup, he did 67 takes, and we went, <laughs> and and I think both Jake and, and Mark went, "Oh, oh, okay. That I'm in this movie. Okay." And now, let's get to the scene. Where is he living? In his trailer. Santa Rosa? Sonoma County. I wouldn't have to go through the Vallejo DA. It's been 11 months since you talked to this guy, and now you want to search his trailer. If we find something, great. If not, we get his prints and handwriting samples from both hands. If I sure would shut you down. What if I can get a second opinion? I don't want to step on Sherwood's toes. He Harry, trained me at All I this. need to know is if the suspect is ambidextrous, could he possibly have written those letters with his other hand? between you and me, because there are differing schools of thought on this. Get the samples of his other hand. If he's the Zodiac, you'll get a match. That's the current thinking, according to Terry Pascoe. Meanwhile, I spoke to a psychologist who'd be willing to testify that someone who undergoes a personality change like Zodiac would manifest it physically, altering his handwriting. Which is why Sherwood couldn't get a match from Alan's samples. We got Terry Pasco, the psychology guy, coupled with Cheney. It could be enough for a warrant. Get Cheney on the record. And shoot the kitties as they came bouncing out. And that he would call himself Zodiac. Yes. And you're willing to swear to this under oath in Superior Court? Without any hesitation. Thank you very much, Mr. Cheney. Thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. Well, looks like you got your man. Now, I can't be sure, but that line looks like you just got your man. Sounds a lot like David Fincher. It actually sounds like the man himself, putting on a little bit of a voice. Now, in this credible, tense battle, lobbying for an alternate route to legitimately investigate Arthur Lee Allen, we see wrestling for second opinions, tiptoeing into new jurisdictional areas to lobby, finding the right things to be said to a judge to allow them to finally search this man's trailer 11 months after the interview. 
So to help me unpack the fastidious pacing of Zodiac, the reason why jurisdiction and these specifics of investigations matter, the fact that these are real people, and convincing producers and financiers that these are the ways that one should conduct themselves when making a true-to-life text. I've got a lineup of incredible people. Anna Swanson, writer of Zodiac James Vanderbilt, April Wolfe, and finally Josh Rothkopf, who summarizes that this scene is all about how drastically ill-equipped 1970s policing was for serial killers. I think it's just, it's to me, and yeah, I, I get why, like, for some people, this is not Fincher's most, like, watchable. It's, it's, I mean, it's not the one that I've watched most, you know, but, like, I watch his stuff a lot. I love the guy. Um, and I, I get, like, it's sort of, it has this sort of pace that it's working with that I think it's, it, 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 it's, it's weird to call it slow because I feel like slow is so often used to like disparage a film like oh it's slow it's boring but it's not it's just like purposefully slow and meditative because it's about process and I think you're either gonna be engrossed by that or you're not and for some people like slow isn't their vibe and like I get it but um I think for me it's just it's how richly detailed any given scene can be yes. even when on the surface what is happening is fairly straightforward. So I think that anyone who goes into the film with like, even just that tidbit of knowledge, maybe they don't know all the details. They don't know, you know, how expansive this was. They don't know what time period everything took place in, right? Like, you know, Zodiac's never solved. So I think that um, whereas something like Gone Girl or Seven or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, there's the thrust of an investigation that you kind of, you either assume if you're watching for the first time or you know if you're watching on repeated viewings that this is going to be solved there's going to be a conclusion here we're going to find yes. out who did it and yes there's twists within that of course like seven obviously like great twist even when you know who did it right that type of thing but i think that with zodiac it kind of if you go into the movie with any knowledge i think you have to be aware or at least come to learn very quickly that the thrill of this movie is sitting in these scenes where we know we're not going to solve the case, but it's about the obsession and the process and the minutia of trying to figure it out. And I just think like, even when working in that sort of serial killer investigation genre, like it's so varied and it's so different were I was sort of obsessed with the idea of you know the more research I did on the more we sort of talked to the police of like how that actually worked and, and not only it's like people make mistakes people you know what I mean first guy on the crime scene you know bundled everything into a blanket you know the you know Toski never found out that Darlene knew a guy named Lee because that wasn't his case Paul Stein was his case so it's sort of you kind of and and also sort of pop culture when you when you see movies and TV shows about cops, 99% of the time, they know everything, right? They know all the facts of the case. They know, you know, jurisdiction doesn't matter. You know what I mean? That that, and so it was really interesting to to go. Oh, jurisdiction really matters. Like jurisdiction really. Like when when Graysmith talks to to Toski and says, you know, Darlene this, Darlene that, and he goes, yeah, that's not my case. Paul Stein's my case. Like that's a real thing. You know, it's, it's it's a real thing they had to deal with. So we love the stuff about, I love the stuff about who has a fax machine and who doesn't have a fax machine. Like that to me is great shit, you know, <laughs> yeah. to be able to put into this because it's the stuff you don't consider when you go, how did they never catch this master criminal? Well, A, maybe he wasn't a master criminal and B, the reason he didn't catch him is because it's really hard to do all of this stuff, you know? It's really hard to get communicate information between four different police departments. That doesn't mean that, that one one cop was dumb or another cop, you know, but it just, time goes on, people lose their, you know, people people's memories change, they lose evidence, they forget stuff, like, you know, time is the real killer of all of these things. So that, that stuff was really interesting to me, to sort of to be able to explore that. Well, that's what I mean, and that's also why we put Summer of Love in the beginning of the movie. It was very, you know, it's like, no, this was July 4th, 1969. But, you know, it's, it starts with, 
the most Americana of Americana, the fireworks and, you know, sparklers and kids and it's the summer of love. And, and, and that was all very, very deliberate. And then with the, with the, with the Brian Hartnell piece, I mean, I remember sitting with, with Fincher and Brian Hartnell and Brad with the police report, Ken Narlow's police report. And we went through it with him and we, and he would say, oh no, I remember that. Yes, I did do that. Yes. Oh, no, I think that's wrong. I was wrong about that. And sort of went down every kind of line and beat. And he had given his statement from the hospital bed. I mean, he had I mean, been stabbed, yeah. I think, the day before. So he was on drugs, he was in and out of it. And so a lot of what we were doing was, and, and, and Fincher was very serious about this from the jump. He said, we have to get this right because these are real people. You know what yes. I mean? I'm showing real people die on screen who had families who's, you know, who were probably not gonna be excited there's a movie about this. We have to be as accurate as possible. And so that's why, you know, he set these, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this, but he sort of famously with us set these conditions. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. ...which were, we have to use everybody's name, correct name. We can't use pseudonyms. We have to talk to every living uh, survivor and we have to be journalistically as accurate as possible. And I actually, in the script, had to double source everything like a journalist for us to put in the movie. Because that's also the legal department was like, you want to use everyone's real name? I, that's the that's the kind of stuff that, that I love. And also one of the reasons why the commentary tracks for his movies, I think, are some of the best, um, the best. Uh, film, film school that <laughs> yeah. you can get. Um, the, the the ways that he's thinking about things is the kind of stuff that you're not actually going to get in film school. Like you're, you know, he's creating things to think about in film school. I, I think also something about him, I, another aspect of filmmaking is like, this is amazing. It's creative. I think about this in terms of like Peter Weir, Cronenberg, all of these other people who've like broke ground and how they make film. You have to convince people that this insane idea <laughs> that you have is worth putting that work into. And yes. it's not always the case with crews that you hire. It's not always the case that you can convince them that this is the way that it should be done because people come out of, for instance, film school, sometimes they're just like union who've been around for a long time mm. and they don't wanna do something different. And that's a hurdle that you have to get over is the fact that you have to convince all of these people around you who've done things a certain way that you should actually do them your way and that it's worth the time because it yes. will take extra time and so many people do not feel that it's worth the time especially when there's a producer who's just like are you going to make your day and uh, you know of course you can plan 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 uh <laughs> as much as you can and like try to uh, get people to understand that, that this is your vision and, and that you have to you know put in this extra effort but it's not easy it's really yeah. not and it's a separate art form to get people to listen to you um when you say that you have to do things a different way to unlearn it i mean like that your, your natural reaction is like you're on set you're just like i know how to do my job why would someone <laughs> tell me how to do my job and it's just like well sometimes you can learn how to do your job differently and and that's just i think sometimes condescending to people too um, but yes. at the end of the day, it could kind of open up their creative uh, floodgates. And that's why you get someone like Cronenberg who only works with the same crew all the time. It's just like, yeah, we know we're gonna do something different on set. Zodiac is in a way about the clutter of departments not meshing well. Yes, it, it, like, There's a whole scene in the film about faxes that didn't reach the right we don't place. have a we don't have a fax either we don't have a fact right there's like, <laughs> and there's, like a, there's a very subtle kind of like like envy and also kind of a snobbery in there and yeah. right and it's it's it, so it's kind of about um i mean this has been much discussed the idea of the film being about an analog information age yes. that doesn't have but it's i i think it's not necessarily the analog solidity it's the fact that there are these little communities and little worlds and little 
perfectly functioning police departments that work well in deputies in small towns and even in big cities. But the idea of, of tracking an overarching cr crime spree like this over several years in several towns and... And, and different uh, modes almost always. That that was a kind of crime that didn't exist. Yes. And, 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 and when you think about like why something like the FBI was created, uh, in a way, this is sort of like what Michael Mann's Public Enemies is about too. But like the idea of what the FBI signified in terms of like larger international crimes and crimes that needed a sort of a larger governmental oversight to really get at it. People weren't associating serial killer crimes with that. They're very proud of Dillinger yeah. and bank robbers and the or, or like or uh, gambling or mafia gambling or fitters like like. Yeah. Uh, have Ignali and catch me if you can, but but like the idea of a, the idea of serial killer crime or especially sexual serial killer crime, gruesome like that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have risen to the occasion of a sort of a national oversight level, which I think places this movie at a really interesting moment in just crime, you know, pursuit. I mean, yes, it's, it's so it, it's fascinating to me, and in a way, it kind of harkens back all the way to a movie like M which I know is a, 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 a film that Fincher loves, Fritz Lang's M, where um, with, with, it still continues to blow my mind when I watch that movie about how um, it's the criminals that get together and then catch the killer. I'm sorry, spoiler alert, but it's like, like the idea that this is way too complicated for the you know police and his you know cup of coffee and his you know his cozy little office with the. You know, it's an archetype, and it's and it's sort of like you know Mabuse and you yeah. know Doctor No, and the whole idea of the criminal mastermind. But it really was, I mean, in a real world sense. And actually, it's 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 funny when you think about it. Like, there's also a through line in Zodiac, in addition to the to the through line of of um, police departments working together or not working together. There's another through line of the heroic cop, you know, Toski as the model for Bullet. And Bullet stole that holster thing from Tusky, not the other way around. And that's something that, that we hear from Avery, like Fincher needs to include that line to talk about how... So we're still almost trapped, if you, if you think about it almost in a larger sense, we're trapped in a kind of a John Wayne mentality of yes. this hero, the heroic cop, or, you know, Clint Eastwood to be more current with Time of Zodiac, who's going to come in and fix it, get Scorpio, whatever. But that's just simply not what's going to happen in reality. Well, looks like you got your man. Mr. Allen, this is the Santa Rosa Police Department. We have a warrant to search your residence. Oh. I'll check with the neighbors. Close the door. Close it out. There's rodents running around. Neighbor said he tore out of here about half hour ago. You think somebody tipped him? We're not leaving till he comes back. I'll check the back. Have those checked for blood. And a pair of black gloves, men's seven, just like the ones we found in the cab. 
Well, he's got the same size shoes and gloves as he. Probably just a coincidence. Dave, I got a gun. Check that. Two guns. Both 22s, one automatic, one revolver. That's interesting. If he happens to have an M1 rifle here in the closet. The little garland's bouncing off buses. Someone's here. Hello, Arthur. Remember us? When we arrive at Arthur Lee Allen's trailer, we're set up for that mythical John Doe moment, just like Seven. Seven is ultimately a film that explores the aftermath and the detritus of heinous acts. Breaching the seal on that maze-like manifestation of John Doe's mind reveals shrines dedicated to each perfectly conceived perversion, cataloging a truly unfathomable level of psychopathic dedication. In complete contrast, the corner block, weathered trailer of Arthur Lee Allen opens to reveal a grotesque, slovenly hovel, distractingly filled with rodent life in all stages of animation. Pornography is strewn in the living spaces, self-pleasure apparatuses are discarded in grotty bedside gutters, a scum-filled bathroom carelessly utilised. This is not the lair of a master criminal. And it's impossible to imagine that the traces of crimes that altered the consciousness of San Francisco and Southern California would not be able to be found in such a squalid mess of this most appealing suspect. But that's just it. 11 months is a long time. Here's Drew McWeeny, Katie Walsh and Jim Hempel on casting John Carroll Lynch and all the feelings that you get when you watch this trailer scene. I'm fascinated at how well he plays off of them, at well at how well he bats things away. And you know, if he's not guilty, if we look at the rest of the film, the scene that we're talking about, the Charles Fleischer scene, that scene, I I don't think that guy had anything to do with it. I don't think ultimately that guy was responsible for anything or tied to anything. But not knowing lends so much fear and so much weight to that. And not knowing in John Carroll Lynch's scene. I don't know how you walk into any of those rooms, even with four or five other guys. Like, because you've got him built up as the devil in your head by that point. And I, I do think the the way that the film manages to show you how they felt like he was the this guy. giant, terrifying thing. But the film never leans into it to make us see him that way. Yes. That's another trick that it's constantly playing. It doesn't give him the satisfaction, you know, on the off chance the Zodiac Killer is still alive and holding office as Ted Cruz um, and watching this <laughs> this film, you know, he's not going to watch this and go, yeah, they really made me look good there. <laughs> like, it's it's not a celebratory movie at all. And that's not, it's, it's such a balancing act, man. So it's such a relief to be able to modulate this terror and tension that is like permeating an entire city and this edging quality of the investigation that goes nowhere and it's this weird labyrinth that like everybody's falling down and then having these little funny moments along with it and these little moments to breathe and kind of sort of say life goes on and people are still going to say funny things and people are still going to get drunk and people are still going to fall in love and people are still going to like you know, as much as they are obsessed with these things. And I think that's, you know, going back to memories of murder, like that's the same thing. It's like, these cops are still people. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to do stupid stuff, get drunk. They're going to go to the weird spot. They're going to, you know, fight with each other. And like, it's, it's that human quality. And so there's this like humanity in both the investigators and we don't get it so much. I mean, we kind of get it with the Zodiac because it, it's like he's this mythological figure, but we see Arthur Lee Allen and we realize he's just a guy. And there's something about going to his trailer when you're just like, this place is disgusting. <laughs> like yeah, this is the mind really of just... a, of a disturbed individual. Like, are there like a bunch of squirrels? Squirrels living in there and also <laughs> frozen for the purposes of eating, I guess, as well right. as like, sex toys and yeah, guns and, and yeah filth. the guns and filth and and 
that kind of brings him back down to earth a little bit too. I mean, it's disturbing, but it also is like, just like, here's this very weird, strange, disturbing existence of this person. And, you know, I think Fincher's really trying to grapple with the outsize legend and the human scale of it all with yeah. all of these different people. And, you know, Toski's kind of a legend and he's Bullet and he's Dirty Harry and and the Zodiac is a legend. But like, who are they really as people? Like Toski loves animal crackers and, you know, he, he loves sandwiches like or, or just what all of the little quirks and things that Ruffalo brings to the performance. So I think that like modulation between like the legend and the real people involved is like what really makes it work. That's always something that struck me as interesting about the end of that trailer search scene is that you don't, if if my memory is correct, you don't actually get a reaction shot from Gerald, John Carroll Lynch. You just see him from behind. And it's such an interesting choice of Fincher's. And yet you don't need to see him because John Carroll Lynch made such an indelible impression during his interview scene. You know how he's reacting. You can imagine his reaction. It's almost like, you know, it's just... I feel like that's always a testament to a great actor is when you can see them from their back and know what they're thinking. (laughs) And that's sort of a great classic example of it. I love that too, because you already know the games that he's willing to play to seem put upon. And it's almost like, how could it ever get better Mm -hmm. than what we've just seen? Mm-hmm. How could it ever get better than that great scene? So him being there and them being at the trailer and him pretending and having this lovely facade and then people being in his space. That incredible transition, I think John, John Carroll Lynch himself calls back, called back, you know, peeling off his human skin suit to react mm-hmm. to to react to the, the what was happening. I, I love that choice. And I also love he's wearing terrible shorts, Jim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the wardrobe disgusting. Really fascinating. Yeah, it's great. Just disgusting high shorts. He's not a very, you know, uh, he's not a very spry and spelt man at that moment. Like he's meant to be a bit dumpy uh, to fit with the brief of Zodiac. So it's really, it's a really fascinating choice. And I, I love that. I love that look. Yeah, and I don't know if that's based in any kind of research or if it was just a creative choice or what, because I remember reading an interview with Fincher around the time the movie came out where he talked about his approach to the wardrobe and the costumes and how it was always this thing where they would have something that kind of, you know, looked right in terms of the visual design, but then they would discover that someone, you know, would wear a t-shirt over a shirt and tie and they would be like, well, that's a strange choice, but that (laughs) says something about that person. And so then, you know, Fincher's tendency would be to use the thing they discovered in the research. And I don't know if that's where that uh, Arthur Lee Allen shorts choice comes from or where, but it is, yeah, it's very odd. And I love that thing about peeling the skin off because that's what he does in the final scene you see him in with uh, Gyllenhaal in the hardware store too. There's just that great moment where uh, they block eyes and John Carroll Lynch. It's so subtle. I mean, that's the great thing. I know other people have talked about this in the podcast, but the acting in this movie, it is so subtle. I can't figure out exactly how the actors even do it. And I mean, it's just, I don't know. Obviously the movie, you know, the movie's really brilliantly cast and it's brilliantly written and it's really well directed by Fincher and there's just something about the alchemy of all those elements coming together that you get those moments you know ob- I, 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 you know again in that Arthur uh, the Arthur Lee Allen interview scene that you've you've talked about on the previous episode just the subtle ways that the investigators give away to each other and talk to the audience what they're thinking while trying to contain it from Arthur Lee Allen. It's such subtle, complex acting. And, you know, I mean, I mean, there's some movies that I watch that are great and I have a sense of how they did it. I know how they got their effects. And then there are some where it's just a mystery to me. And this is one of those movies where it's just a mystery because it's in so many ways, the movie is so conventional when you get right down to it. You know, in so many ways, it's just it's what you see on procedurals every week on multiple shows. I mean, even that the trailer scene, when they are searching the trailer, there are certain aspects of it. They're like serial killer movie 101. I oh. mean, seeing like, you know, the squirrel, the, the rodents in like cages and in the, in the refrigerator and the, the filthy 
obscure porno magazines and just the the way it's lit and the way it's framed it's it's not that different from an episode of criminal minds but the ways the subtle ways in which it is different make it totally different from an episode of criminal minds do you remember us just a deft antagonistic jibe from tosky to build the possibility that we've finally caught this guy now if the zodiac and manson were hinge points in american consciousness this is the hinge point in zodiac we transition back to the sfpd and tosky and armstrong are almost jumping out of their skin watching captain marty lee debriefing on the phone fincher and harris avides compose one of the most impactful shots of the film dermot moroni walks from the office of captain marty lee toward the camera he's out of focus in the background and moves into a sharp close-up he speaks a word that is impossible to unhear and for every single viewing from this point onward you know he's gonna say No match, prints, no match, writing, no match. On both hands, right? Because we got handwriting from both his hands. And neither hand matches. Forget Sherwood. Let's get another opinion. Fellas, he's not your guy. Here's Brianna Ziegler sewing up something that I think that Tosky is feeling in this moment and that we are feeling at the conclusion of this scene every single time we watch it. And I had an, another moment where I was just like, I had multiple moments during my rewatch last night where I was like, I would love like a few years down the line, we have another like Golden State Killer moment where suddenly it's like, we got him, we got him, we figured it out. Like, all, but 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 I don't think we will. I, I maintain that it, it was Lee Allen. And I mean, especially with the fact that the, the letter stopped after he died. And I mean, it's, it's if it was him, as long as he's dead, like nothing's ever gonna, ever gonna happen again. And everyone will still think Ted Cruz is the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> yeah, I was like, nah, we're never gonna have that, that Golden State Killer moment. Cause if it really, if, if, if I get to live to old age and nothing about the Zodiac Killer ever comes back again, I will die and my last thought will be, it was my Hey, what do you want? Time off? A hug? Do you know what the worst part of this is? I can't tell if I wanted it to be Alan so bad because I actually thought it was him, or I just want all this to be over. It's because you thought it was him, and I did too. You know what, take some time off. Spend some time with your wife and the kids. Go to Candlestick, see a movie. And now the final word on this episode of Zodiac Chronicle. Firstly from April Wolf about the structure of Zodiac. And finally, from Finch's style, from Josh Rothkopf. Well, I think, you know, first of all, I do want to say that one of the reasons I feel like this didn't get appreciated, I mean, of course, like the length, but he's, uh, Fincher's employing uh, basically a two-act structure to this. Yes. And I think a two-act structure terrifies people it it doesn't it doesn't um it doesn't make them feel comfortable in the same way that a traditional three act does and you know kubrick would constantly do a two act structure um hitchcock would sometimes do a two act structure but that's more of like a classic filmmaking technique that's something yes. that we've completely moved away from and so he's bringing in these classic techniques that that uh fall out of favor and i find that um he's employing them in more modern ways that people he you know people have to learn the language of his filmmaking a little bit more and so then you get in the tv show 
show of like Mindhunter, which, you know, TV now and streaming can be more experimental. And people are like, oh, I love that. I want more of that. And it's like, hey, have you heard of, have you heard of Zodiac? <laughs> um, so, you know, I did, I did yeah, want to. The, the suggested viewing is actually just Zodiac underneath Mindhunter. If you like Mindhunter, it's, look at what we made you before, like 10 years ago. Exactly. It's just like, hey, we've actually done this. It's totally fine if you just want to revisit it now. And and I, I would love to see more people employing more classic film techniques and structures like like David Fincher is doing in this, even though it wasn't successful then. Like you can't really use it as a comp as a filmmaker, which is the sad part because like you fall in love with something and you wish that it were more popular and you want to use it as a comp when you're doing pitches and people are like, yeah, that movie didn't make any money. And you're like, well, shit. So I'm going to do something that will make money. But it this is like, anyway. Fincher isn't necessarily about the content for me at this point. Like no. it's, it's really about, I mean, for, he was one of the first filmmakers for me to realize about his filmmaking that he he was going to excite the material based on his own technique not necessarily based on a revelation or yes. like oh they're closing in on the killer or something and in a way for for me fincher then joins a lineage of people like pakula but also people like dario argento yes where you're talking about giallo films that just have the stupidest content, like really the stupidest. <laughs> if you describe it, if you, the killer likes to wear black gloves, or you know, he's, you know, like if you describe it out loud, it'll it'll crumple, it'll fall apart. But if you watch it and you realize that Mario, it's direct, Mario like, Bava, Bava, exactly. Like, like it, there you go, and it's all like craft, and it's and it's he's directing the shit out of it. He's directing the shit out of shit. Yeah. It's marvelous, and it's also exciting me to think or speculate. There must have been a meeting where Fincher is persuading people to give him money to make Zodiac, and he's and and they're saying, "Well, we don't. It won't have an ending because we don't know who the Zodiac killer is." And he'll say, "No one's going to care. No one's going to care because by the time they watch my movie and you've seen my movies." they will be so thrilled and so excited that no one's going to care. I don't even know if he's 100% right about the conviction, but I love the fact that he must have had that conversation with the people before they greenlit the film. That concludes episode 16 of Zodiac Chronicle, Leo Part 2. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to this show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes. And if you can't get enough... Unplugged Zodiac sessions are going to be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Patreon, which is linked in all of our show notes or at oneheatminute.com. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas. Thank you, Duff. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac stickers and pins were designed by the extremely talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.read0310 at gmail.com and go buy one, why don't you? They're very cheap and they're very awesome. So until next time. Goodbye.